Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Dimitra Kasimis to talk about her new book, The Perpetual Immigrant and the Limits of Athenian Democracy. This book was recently published by Cambridge University Press in a particular series titled Classics After Antiquity, which makes somewhat of a case for understanding, thinking about, and considering classics, as well as how they may inform some of our contemporary ideas. But I'm going to let Demetra talk to us a little bit about that. I'd like to welcome Demetra Kasimis to the podcast today. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to the project, The Perpetual Immigrant and the Limits of Athenian Democracy? Sure. Well, first of all, um, I just want to say it's it's great to be here and to thank you, Lily, for having me. I am a um, an assistant professor at the University of Chicago in the political science department, and I teach um, classes on classical Greek thought and also contemporary democratic theory and um, the history of political thought more broadly. Um, and the book is something that grew out of obviously my my dissertation but but really more personally out of, out of um an encounter or a memory that i that i had that was sort of stirred um in a class in graduate school um and i remember really early on in grad school sitting in a seminar that my future advisor sarah monison was teaching and um we were reading the republic we were reading plato's republic and she put on the blackboard the names of the characters that are especially prominent in the beginning of the Republic. And she identified a couple of them as, as medics. Uh, and the term hadn't actually emerged ever in a class for me before, but it uh, immediately called to mind a song that I listened to as a child. Um, when I was growing up in New York, my father's a Greek immigrant and he, in the, in the seventies, there were a lot of, of Greek shops on, um, Ninth Avenue near Port Authority, like record shops and uh, nightclubs and supermarkets. And one of the albums that he bought there was um, uh, included a song called Ometicos, which is um, means the medic. And it was a, a sort of 1970s r- recording and and Greek version of a song that was originally done in in French by Georges Moustaki. And so when I saw her write the word medic on the board, there was, I had some, obviously some attraction to it. And I thought, why is it that this word that clearly is an ancient Greek term, that's actually a very unusual word to use for immigrant in modern Greek. um, Why hadn't it kind of surfaced at all for me before? And I thought there's something strange going on here. And it was really that sort of more personal connection to it that drew me to ask the question, you know, why why don't we talk about this more? And obviously classicists know what medics, who medics were, but even, even they tended, tended to just treat it as sort of a historical question and not actually bring it to life in these texts. So let me follow up for our listeners and for myself. I mean, I remember hearing about medics when I was also in graduate school, reading some of the classical texts. What exactly is a medic in context of, and you you pick it up in three different places, but broadly understood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So medics, um, that was, a a medic uh, was the status or the term given, a legal term, um, given to immigrants and their 
children, even those people who were born in Athens to uh, different points, one or two Athenian immigrants. And, and so while it doesn't necessarily have a juridical meaning, um, it, it develops one in the 5th century um, BC. And so just in terms of sort of the legal framework of Athenian democracy, medics were, were free people. So they weren't slaves. They were distinguished from slaves. Um, those slaves, when they were um, emancipated, if they got out of debt slavery, they became medics because slaves were foreign in Athens. They were non-Athenians. They might have been Greek in some cases, but not Athenians. So medics were free, and they were excluded permanently, except in totally honorary um, situations, from acquiring citizenship. Um, and so the the kind of interesting thing about this is that, you know, we tend from a U.S. perspective, but not just U.S. perspective, um, to think about being born in the territory of a country as, um, you know, making you eligible for citizenship. But in the case of, of um, medics, um, in a sense, the immigrant being an immigrant was a kind of inheritable status because it was something that was passed down generation after generation. Um, but the fact that they were free and in some cases could amass great amounts of wealth, they were some of the wealthiest people in Athens, meant that they also sort of moved in, in pro- they could move in prominent circles or they could, um, they were present in aspects of Athenian life that, um, that the, that Athenians really tied to um, politics. So even if they weren't, these weren't sort of the formal institutions of politics, they might've been, you know, uh, activities like speech writing um, or um, sophistry, you know, where they were teachers of persuasion. And they were also obviously uh, laborers and artisans and they worked on the Acropolis alongside um, citizens and slaves. So they were really kind of everywhere, um, though they couldn't own property. They couldn't own land, which is significant. And I think also kind of underscores their, the symbolic association between um, laboring, certain kind of, uh, you know, like being an artisan rather than sort of a, a, a landowner uh, with um, a kind of deprivileged status, even if you could rent land from someone. And, you know, it gets a little more complicated, but that sort of link between that or this form of exclusion and propertylessness and then the sort of lines of work that you could be funneled into or that were open to you as a result um, uh, has to do with that that law. And, and what you talk about um, in the book is also how the medics are insiders yet always outsiders. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about how that how we should understand that positionality and why it's important in our consideration not only of the classical texts that you explore but also potentially to inform some of our current conversations sure that's a really great question and one of the reasons i'm i'm glad you asked it is because um it helps get at what was tricky for me in the beginning about um figuring out the sort of diagnosing the lack of interest in the medic. And it's precisely because of what you point to, which is that they're neither totally insiders nor totally outsiders. They're these liminal figures. And I think that's the term I use, these sort of um, these figures on the frontier. And by that I mean by liminal, I mean they are on the border, neither, you know, on the inside nor the outside. And so 
I say it was tricky to figure some of this out because people who have studied ancient Greek texts, um, obviously classicists and anyone who are sort of on the peripheries of that, or even more broadly know that in the humanities and the humanistic social sciences for generations now, there's been a real interest um, in looking at um, figures that are marginal or that are, but are turn out to be symbolically central, really key to not only thinking about political life, but also reading texts. And so what I was fascinated by was the way in which um, all of this really great work that had been done, especially on Greek tragedy, um, tended to think about citizenship or let's say what we would call identity in these sort of oppositional terms uh, like mass and elite or uh, male, female, native, foreigner, free, slave. And that the medic, one of the reasons the medic kind of didn't come to light really that much was that the medic actually cuts across all those binaries and so sort of destabilizes or troubles all of them. And that's one reason, you know, that it falls out of the picture. Um, But it's also why it's a really uh, fascinating, um, as you put it, positionality to think with and to kind of reinvestigate not only the text, but also the ways we read and why we have been as readers invested in looking at um, the origins of democracy and of political theory through those oppositions, what what sort of um, projects they've served or or um, wishful ways of thinking about democracy. And that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you and also allow you to take us a bit through the examples and the places where you discuss the role of the medic and, and how they are di- sort of positioned and understood. You have three different sort of um, authors who look at the medic. Yeah. Um, and so if you could just take us a little bit through each one um, and, and to some degree, why, why you chose, I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of um, discussion with regard to the role of Plato's Republic and our understanding of various forms of government. Many of us teach it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other works that you choose chose are not necessarily ones that most of us who teach an intro to political theory class necessarily use, but perhaps there's an argument to integrate them. Uh, But there are also different kinds of texts, as you point out. Yes. So I think maybe before answering those questions, I should take a step back and say that, um, and say something a little bit more specific about the intervention that I'm making. So as I mentioned in the beginning, historians have for, for obviously for centuries acknowledged uh, in their scholarship that classical Athens invited immigrants into the polis, that they um, ordered them in a certain, certain way. But readers haven't considered immigration or nativism questions or problems for the thinkers that are writing about democracy at the time. And so one of the challenges was trying to bring to life this preoccupation that I was, you know, that I felt was there and I thought was there that had to be there because every other aspect is sort of being exhaustively, you know, um, explored by thinkers like Plato. And so to bring that out required developing certain strategies of reading 
that really borrowed a lot from um, literary studies, but that, you know, already had a kind of um, a legacy in political theory. So a lot of um, scholars or political theorists have read texts in the history of modern political thought with an eye to the rhetorical features of arguments. You know, we think about Rousseau or Burke, or Locke. Um, but less so with Plato. I mean, not. I'm not. This is not to say that I'm the first person to think about the rhetorical features of, let's say, the Republic, right? But that that was going to be the key to animating this concern, and that kind of goes back to the question you asked before about the insider outsider. So one of the great things about these texts is that they're not that explicit about people being medics. You know, you have to kind of know what the patterns of uh, conduct or ways of life that were associated with that kind of insider-outsider status were to be able to to see them enacted in these texts. And in the case of the Republic, the there are real historical figures that Plato is drawing on. So if you know something about the historical context and what he's drawing on, then you start to see them. So um, you were asking why these texts and sort of... Um, how I how I address the question through them, right? Yes. Okay. So the the thing about um, the first substantive chapter in the book, you noted that the um, that so Euripides Ion, which is a is a tragedy from it's hard to know exactly when it was performed, but it seems like maybe four eleven, which is a period during the Peloponnesian War. Um, and that's also when the Republic is set. It's written later. It's written probably, I don't know, maybe five, six decades later, but um, or actually a little bit less than that. So the early, early to mid fourth century, um, but it's set back during the Peloponnesian War. And then the final text that I look at is, a, is an actual um, speech from a court case that was written by Demosthenes that takes place um, much later in the fourth century. But Euripides Ion is a really interesting case because it's a it's a text that, you know, no wonder you wouldn't read in a political theory class because it really at first glance doesn't seem all that political. I mean, it's a kind of family romance, or at least that's the way it's been read. Ion is this um, young man who is uh, ignorant of who his true, his real parents are. He's he's grown up a kind of orphan in Delphi taking care of Apollo's temple. And he soon, in a very, it's a very complex plot, and he eventually um, comes to meet his mother and recognize her as Creusa, who is a kind of Athenian queen. I mean, she's somebody who is autochthonous. And I haven't explained what that means. I mean, some people might know, but it's basically it refers to the myth that um, Athenians uh, one of the myths, founding myths that they told about their exceptional, their exceptionality. So they, unlike other peoples, according to the myth, um, not only sprung from the earth because they could trace their lineage back to a mythical ancestor who did literally come from the earth, but they that meant that they weren't immigrants. In other words, they had always sort of they had lived in their on their land since the beginning of time, and that was a really important. Um, Myth not only uh, for Athenian imperial expansion because it was a, a myth about uh, inferiority, but also it was a it was a myth that helped to distinguish Athenians from the immigrants and the uh, Athenian born or Athens born 
children of those immigrants who couldn't claim that kind of um, exceptional birth. So in the ion, he eventually finds out that he is um, autochthonous through his mother, um, but he's made actually to hide this knowledge, hide this um, identity as the condition for his return to Athens. And so my argument was really that there's something curious going on here with secrecy as the kind of condition for certain kind of repatriation. But what the ion does is it sort of flips what we would think of as the usual immigrant story. So instead of passing as a citizen, he passes as an immigrant. And, um, you know, to kind of tie some of these loose ends together, the reason the ion's not necessarily, um, you know, read this way, at least this was my argument, is that um, it's it's not usually read as a story about becoming a medic. And so once we sort of um, restore the politics of immigration or metoikia to the text, even though that term's not used, so it's a figurative kind of exploration of this, then we start to see the interesting ways in which this text could be read as a, as a founding story, not about Athenian exceptionalism, but about the susceptibility to someone's of someone's performance being mistaken as the wrong kind of performance. And so I'll just break that down and make that a little clearer. Um, once he finds out that his Athenian lineage makes him Athenian, um, that sort of knowledge of his blood doesn't actually end up in his acting as a citizen, in his acquiring that identity in practice. And so the first criticisms to sort of take from that is that, you know, blood doesn't, doesn't determine um, practice. It doesn't determine your citizen practice or your lived experience of citizenship. And then the second thing to think about, though, is that it's sort of because it goes through the knot of a secret, founds the possibility of passing. And yeah, did you want to say something? I, I just, your discussion of both passing and performance, um, performance as something that you may or may not be, I found those discussions to be particularly um, engaging in part because of, you know, contemporary politics. Right. Um, and this, not only the question of passing in terms of race or sexual identity, but the, the, sort of idea of who looks like or who performs citizenship, I found to be really fascinating as you're sort of unpacking it in these different places. It's something that I found, I also found fascinating when I started to see this in the text because, um, you know, on the one hand, and this is something I kind of talk about in the introduction, I have been influenced by feminist theory, by gender theory. Um, and also by um, critical race theory to, to a lesser extent, probably, and then um, post-colonial theory. But when I was, so when I was writing the book, I was informed by that stuff, but then also sort of aware of the ways in which uh, ancient Greek thought uh, is interested in performance. I mean, it's interested in mimesis as an, as an idiom for um, theatricality and bodily impersonation and that this is always open to contestation and interpretation. And I really think that um, bringing those two traditions together or using one to kind of recover the other um, is 
it's not something that I was able to really, I think, pursue fully in the book. I mean, I think the the signs are there, the the readings are there, but I what I what I wasn't able to pursue fully was the part where feminist theory, um, or certain certain strands of feminist theory has been, um, you know, kind of not as uh, or maybe reads Plato as, and this is especially the case with Plato on, on Mimesis, as somehow um, hostile to that idea of performance. That, that's exactly the kind of um, instability that he wants to contain. And I thought that sort of bringing those two together, even just implicitly, was a kind of interesting against the grain you know, argument or reading. Yeah. And I, again, I, I thought it was a as I went through the book and I was thinking about the way that you are sort of pulling some of these threads out, I was really fascinated by the the question of performance, which you also get at in terms of, as you say, sort of how do we read these texts themselves? Right. Not just like, you know, generally speaking, what is the noble lie, but like how and why do we read the Republic? And so if I could take Mm -hmm. you a little bit into the Republic. Sure. (laughs) I'd love that. And to talk about the how and why we read the Republic and where do the medics go and where do they come from in it and Mm. and what, you know, Mm -hmm. what should we be thinking about? I have three chapters on the Republic and I call them a medic reading of the Republic in three acts. And so instead of, you know, writing a book that was just on the Republic, I wanted to show how these three aspects of the text. In the first case, the framing, the setting, which takes place, the Republic takes place at a medic's home. It's it's totally enabled by an encounter, uh, made possible by an encounter that Socrates has supposedly spontaneously in the street with um, a prominent medic named uh, Polemicus, who invites him back to his home. And that's where other people are sort of waiting. And then the conversation about justice and founding the Callipolis takes place. So I wanted to do a chapter that really took seriously how um, that characterization, the setting in Piraeus, which is the Athenian port, and that was tied to movement, mobility, mobility of goods, of people. And of course, it was a huge, um, there was a huge medic population that lived there. How all of those things were generating meaning. They were not just, you know, mere background. They were actually um, places or ways that the, the text is was generating political meaning and and critical meaning. And then I have a chapter on the noble lie. And so the other, so what I was what I was going to say is that then the, the the second and third chapters on the Republic look at moments that have been, I think, very important in the reception of Plato um, as far as uh, what it is that his sort of either his democratic, his critique of democracy amounts to or what it's based in. And then well, that would be the case with, with book eight, which is where he talks about, or Socrates talks about um, uh, democracy as a regime. And then in the noble lie, that's obviously been so important, especially in the post-war period for thinking about Plato as an anti-democrat, for, for thinking about the arguments that are in the Republic as an endorsement of authoritarianism or in Popper's case, you know, totalitarianism. Um, and so what I'm, you know, I keep saying Plato, but really one of the most important things I think that I stress in the book is that Plato is not, you know, telling us what he thinks. These, these te- this text has been read as doctrine when in fact there are um, 
you know, characters and there's dialogue and it, the whole thing's in its prose. It's a narrator, right. you know, telling us a story from the first person. So when we, the reason that it's in, important to think about the medic is that um, I'm arguing that the whole thing kind of starts with a look at, because this is the setting, at how Athens is not just, you know, the demos, but it's also um, all of these people who are participating in the life of the city from, let's say, this insider-outsider perspective. There are sla- there's a slave present. There are aristocrats present who say nothing. There are medics who really kind of stop speaking um, for the duration of the conversation. And that that's one of the reasons that readers consider that opening as less important to the actual argument of the Republic because they sort of stop speaking. But my point is that they're always there. We're always in Piraeus at a medic's home and that that's a kind of provocation to the reader or even to the characters to rethink the lines of membership. Uh, And so that's, I think, why we then can read the Callipolis and the the noble lie and what it's doing there as an attempt to reorder the city in a more just way. And that takes us to performance again. Um, performance when it comes to the noble lie. So my argument about the noble lie is that there's nothing, you know, the, there's no duping going on. We're let in on this kind of, it's like, it's a conspiracy really to um, perpetuate a founding fiction in the Callipolis that um, people are born with a kind of natural difference that is uh, going to determine their place in society, the jobs they do, and um, make it impossible to actually uh, pursue any kind of mobility, social mobility. So the the class you're born into, if it's gold, um, uh, silver, or bronze, is the class you stay in. But what we're actually told is that this is this is the noble lie, right? That actually the way things really work is that there's a whole uh, practice of judgment and interpretation by the rulers that goes into figuring out in figuring out what uh, metal these people belong, uh, what metal they have, and what class they belong in, and that this is playing on the myth of, of autochthony in Athens, and that it reads as a kind of knowing um, and deeply subversive um, kind of it's a nod to that fact and the fact that it's said in the company of medics in the company in other words of people who are totally implicated by the blood-based you know exclusionary laws in Athens um, gives the noble lie this really I think historical and um, Kind of more, it's it's a situated critique. It's not just like, oh, we need a, you know, all polities have founding fictions. That's true, but it's also a, a simultaneous sort of imminent critique of um, Athenian democracy, and sort of putting the lie to that, showing us that it's an artifice. And and again, I mean, this is also when I teach the Republic. This is always where the students get really sort of. Um, up in arms in a certain sense, like how are they going to determine that? How is that going to work? That's always the questions <laughs> that that sort of come up, and they're never satisfied. But they're <laughs> never satisfied with with a sort of the categories, and they're never satisfied with how it's going to be played out. Obviously, um, 
but I think that your your interpretation in the book also of the way that it is um, positioned as a critique of Athens is again another point with regard to our understanding of what classical texts can teach us, mm, right? And, and I think that's part of what you're doing is is you know sort of in the book is looking at you know how do we understand what they're teaching us, but also why are we thinking about what they're teaching us? That's a great point, right? That that you can um, you can read these these texts that are about antiquity and and forge all of these connections because in a way that's what Plato is doing, right? He's doing a kind of this is a post figuration. He's writing the fourth century about something that happened in the fifth, and so he's playing with these different registers. He's playing with the kind of the privileged awareness that a fourth century reader might have, but he's not talking about the fourth century. There's a kind of distance there that invites a certain kind of critical reflection. And then that's even happening in the the dialogue where they're not directly addressing Athens because that would be too on the nose. They are obliquely do it. Um, But the thing that I, I thought when you were talking about your students is when, you know, they're right, that it's like not going to work. Right. Yeah. And that's the I think that's really part of the brilliance of the noble lies that this is this is yes, this is a utopia. But what it's simultaneously telling us is that politics on the ground doesn't work this way. And like the Athenian myth of autochthony, the Calypolis's noble lie is going to at some point reveal itself as artifice. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to have a weaker hold over our imagination. We might still really believe in hierarchy, in natural difference, even when it doesn't quite match up in practice with our expectations, because that's just really how ideology works. Um, and so I think there's something really fascinating about the the Republic's um, exposing to us the fragility of this kind of an artifice, but its um, importance, its tactical importance, the way that's just a kind of necessary dimension of political life that can get critiqued, it can get revised, but we can't really ever do away with it entirely. Exactly. And and Machiavelli comes back to it to talk about the founding myths and the prince and the republic as well. Right. Um, But of course, you have another example of the discussion of the medics in Demosthenes. Can you talk a little bit about that third sort of position of our understanding of the medics? Yeah. So we've been talking a little bit about passing and how that comes up. So it comes up in the Ion where it's basically a founding story of passing. And then it comes up in the final chapter I have on the Republic where um, Plato uses the term mimesis to talk about what happens in democracies as fathers and sons start acting like each other, men and women, you know, animals and humans, students and teachers. And the way that was always read is a sort of like, okay, this is this kind of chaos, this eradication of all distinction. And that's what Plato dislikes about democracy. When you look at it, it's actually the term for acting like, imitating. He's not actually suggesting that these are sort of really essential differences between people, but these are all roles. And so that was one of the ways that passing or performance, really, that's really more of the point, is in the Republic. And then when I get to Demosthenes, we actually are looking at a real case um, of a citizen who's found his citizenship revoked, and he's appealing the decision um, by his deem, by his community, to strip him of citizenship 
Um, and he's uh, trying to take all the facts about his life and his what his accuser has said and mount an argument for why he actually really isn't a medic as he's suddenly been accused and is um, actually, he's a real citizen. And that requires talking about Athenian parentage. Um, but he's basically trying to disprove that he has been passing for years as a medic, which is really like what takes us back to the ion. So if the ion is a founding story about how passing becomes this like always possible, this is this accusation that can always be leveled at someone once you make citizenship the sign of a antecedent difference that you can't see, in other words, blood, um, then you're going to end up with a case like Euxetheus, who was a really prominent citizen. He's really politically active, but he was a working class, what we would think of as a working class guy who sold ribbons in the Agora. And he had a father who had a, who's dead, but has a, is said to have had a Western Greek accent. Does that mean he's not Athenian? Does that mean, as Euxetheus says, that he actually was a prisoner of war, that he served during the Peloponnesian War, but was held captive on an Ionian island? Um, there's all this business about why his mother would have been working and engaging in what seems like servile, wet nursing kind of work. But really, it's a story about poor Athenians and how their proximity to immigrant labor suddenly puts them at risk. And so every sort of step of the way, you just get this fascinating look at how all these sort of facts can be read um, in multiple ways. They don't, blood doesn't speak for itself, you know. Work is supposed to not, in, an, in a democracy that has eliminated economic barriers to citizenship, well, uh, wealth or class or labor isn't supposed to stand in for citizenship. It's not supposed to be a sign of it one way or the other. And yet here it is being mobilized against this person. Um, and so I just thought that it was a way of bringing to life a lot of the theoretical issues and the sort of binds and paradoxes that are being um, traced in the book through uh, tragedy and philosophy, and that there's something kind of exciting about seeing how even in this court case that we could read, actually, we could read a court speech as, um, as theory and think about yes. It in in tension with the sort of the necessities of law, like what you know, what the law affords, what you really can say and do, and that here is a real life case bringing to life, you know, a lot of the more the dense theoretical questions that are coming up, you know, in the preceding chapters. And and what you talk about, particularly with regard to the Demosthenes section of the book, is also this question of the lie, not the noble lie, but the capacity of somebody to basically impugn somebody's citizenship. Um, and I found that to be really fascinating because of the issue around blood, right? Mm -hmm. That's it's not place of birth. It's who you were born from. Right. Um, and that is, again, something that we are talking about on a daily basis in the United States and other places as well around these questions of who is a citizen. Yes. So what you're referring to in the Demosthenes case is the idea that once there's the possibility of someone's citizenship performance, their lived experience of membership, getting cast as fraudulent, 
there's a kind of guilt that's always already there that's sort of latent and it can be activated um, through an accusation, through a reinterpretation of behavior or of um, family background, you know, facts of, of blood, et cetera. And um, when we think about how it might resonate with contemporary cases, there is, I think this is probably what you had in mind, the most uh, obvious fact would be that the, the Trump administration has um, for a long time now been calling into question the citizenship of native born, the native born children of undocumented immigrants. And that's one of the things that's obviously in play in the Athenian case, which is the way in which you can inherit inherit a, uh, a deprivileged status and that there's a kind of guilt or criminality that might take the form of blood in the Athenian case, but it takes the form of this kind of illegality, this this um, malignant kind of movement across a border that then sort of hardens into some sort of uh, inheritable trait and inheritable fact. And so one of the things I was, I'm was i really interested in and I try to talk a little bit about in the conclusion are the ways that the all the texts I look at show us this is a, case, a, a point actually that uh, Balibar makes um, to some extent when he's talking about France uh, in the post-colonial period, that these forms of exclusion mutate and they mutate tactically. And so what is blood in one case in Athens or even today suddenly looks like illegality or a criminal act or something like that, but that they sort of operate um, similarly and that it's a kind of mistake to assume that um, that just because you know we have territorial citizenship or birth-based citizenship, that that can't t- start to look or be treated more like blood-based or or kinship, and or that we're we're not we're somehow you know like we've moved beyond blood because clearly we haven't. Like who you're born to really matters. And you know, in in the election uh, in two thousand and eight. Sarah Palin famously talked about real Americans, mm. um, which was more about where you were located right. than it was necessarily your birth. But it does become the sort of narrative about like who is real, yeah, and and who is um, an imposter or passing or not quite. Um, when you start to get into these questions of citizenship and the demarcations of citizenship. Totally. And, and that those, those um, categories are not fixed or your status is not fixed. Just because you are a citizen doesn't mean it can't come under threat or that it isn't um, a kind of always a pending status. And I think that's what was so alarming about some of the more recent attacks on birth-based citizenship. I mean, I remember actually giving a version of the Demosthenes chapter as a paper maybe three or four years ago. And someone saying to me when I tried to make the connection to the U.S. and the sort of birther movement, someone said, but that's just these fringe people. I mean, that doesn't even matter. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of like, well, that's an extreme case. It doesn't really illuminate the force of your point. But I think we've seen not only obviously that that's moved into the the sort of spotlight, the center of, of political life to some extent, but also that you don't even need to be 
uh, thinking about it in terms of the birther movement, that there are other ways in which um, these secondary statuses are just proliferating. All these sort of restrictions on people's movement, um, on which family members they're entitled to bring over. There are all of these, um, I think, w- you know, ways that 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 the binary between you know native and foreigner or documented and undocumented don't always illuminate the complexity of this situation. That might be why the medic is this kind of interesting figure to think about. Because as we started off in the, you know our conversation addressing, it really does even if it doesn't directly apply, it puts us in the mind frame to think critically about the familiar oppositions that we've been relying on and why we might rely on them. Well, and I, you know, I think that you, as you say, a lot of your, your thinking about some of this was informed by a number of different schools of thought, um, contemporary, more contemporary schools of thought, and these issues of, you know, not being able to own land, but to have property that the medics had, which always, you know, rings in my ears as, hey, that sounds like women mm. um, in long stretches of history in the United States and other places. Um, yes. That, you know, there is this a similar kind of liminal space that female citizens have often occupied um, or been, you know, sort of positioned into. Um, and so I, I think that you're, you're elucidating of the, the sort of medic in classical thought is really helpful to, to sort of tease out some of these different ways of thinking about who is it isn't in, in the polis, right? Yeah, no, that's a really great connection um, because it, it does also show you, I think this is probably what made you think of it, that, that there are all of these um, intersecting or overlapping these kind of common, um, common forms of exclusion, but we're, you know, it's not like a, a totally neat parallel and yet it, it actually can, it's, it's precisely in the gaps and then in the overlaps that you might be able to generate some new insights into to old problems. And that was one of my sort of concluding questions as part of this series that Cambridge has put out the, the sort of emphasis, there's an editor's section um, introduction to the book that I was intrigued by um, in part because those aren't necessarily the norm, um, Mm -hmm. but also because the argument is that, you know, we should be looking at some of these classical texts, classical thinking because there's ways of rethinking that sort of may help us consider contemporary issues. Can you talk a little bit, a little, I mean, we've already talked a little bit about that, but can you talk a little bit about this, the book in terms of this, this Cambridge University Press series? Sure. Um, yeah. So the, the preface to the book was written by Emily Greenwood, who was one of the series editors and the editor that I worked most closely with. And she's a classicist at, at Yale, um, who has been extremely supportive of, of the project. And what she um, is is suggesting in the preface, but I think also, you know, what, what she and the other editors are trying to do with the series is think more openly about, um, as you suggested, you know, what classical texts um, can do for contemporary thought, but also the ways in which contemporary thought 
have informed our reading of the classics. And so it's kind of a bi-directional um, idea. So, I mean, in, in most fields, I, I think, you know, there's, there's a kind of acknowledgement that, you know, you're not like just recovering the, there's no real way to get outside of your um, horizon. I mean, not everybody right. subscribes to that, right? But, but I do talk about Gautamer in the introduction and, the, and it felt necessary to say that while I'm doing this really his, historically sensitive um, reading of these texts, I also am going to be totally um, not just honest about the ways in which like I'm informed, you know, by, by the things I read, but also that there is no reason to posture that way that in fact, actually there's, there's a really great like critical engagement that can happen, not just because, you know, it's going to help us think in new ways, but that it's actually going to help us diagnose the symptoms, the kind of interpretive investments that we have in uh, the past and reading the past a certain way. And I think Nietzsche is really interesting on on this point to think about like what a real critical reading would be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't just be like applying the medic to uh, U.S. citizenship issues. It would be like, how have we been, you know, what have been the obstacles that we have been erecting, you know, in the in the way of our reading certain um, reading for certain questions or um, you know, what, how have we benefited in some way, like from, from not seeing the medic. And so with classics after antiquity, I think there's just a more, because it's, it's less common in classics to do that. I think there's a real um, still a real premium put on um, obviously philological expertise, which is really important, but also, um, historical evidence and classics after antiquity is sort of saying, well, there's certain ways of reading and certain questions and certain questions that were alive then, but also alive now that we can't see unless we sort of embrace our positionality and also use draw on the sort of critical interpretive resources that have come, you know, come about since, or that we have since antiquity. So that would be in my case, you know, I use a bit of queer theory. I use gender theory. I, you know, Edward Said in a way was kind of important to me when thinking about the setting of the Republic and sort of activating what I think he's this great expression, like, um, what is lightly activated, what is, what is really sort of like, I'm butchering it, but sort of lightly stressed what's there without being prominent, but is actually totally central to the action, you know? So all of those ways of reading are, those come from after antiquity, but they are um, important to bring to bear or at least to, um, I think, explicitly theorize and make sense of when we're engaging with the past. And, and you do, you do a marvelous job in the book, sort of paying attention to that throughout, um, sort of bringing the reader back to those considerations, um, which I found really interesting also in the book. Um, but I wanted to ask you what you're working on now, now that this wonderful book has come out. Oh, well, um, well, I've been getting a little bit more interested in, uh, how ancient, uh, Greek tragedy, um, figures, asylum and refuge and refugees and um and also uh gender because women and chil- and women and children actually are are frequently very prominent in, in Greek tragedy as um the people in need of a safe haven 
Um, but the other thing I've been working on is um, thinking about uh, conspiracy in classical Athens and how Greek texts are um, figuring secret plots or interested in the kind of rampant suspiciousness that was part of life in classical Athens during the Peloponnesian War um, and even the uh, Plato's Republic as a kind of uh, conspiracy. And so that, of course, has like all this resonance because one of the things that Plato's interested in and Thucydides is this democracy that's exhibiting these authoritarian tendencies, but isn't yet an you know authoritarian authoritarian regime, at least juridically, right? At least not formally. And so that's kind of where I think my research is is going to continue to focus on because I'm, I'm kind of excited about maybe changing course and doing something you know slightly different from the immigration. Um, material that I've been working on. So when this fabulous book on conspiracies <laughs> is done, will you come back on the New Books in Political Science podcast and talk to me about it? I would love to. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I want to thank Dimitra Kasimis for talking to me today about The Perpetual Immigrant and the Limits of Athenian Democracy, published by Cambridge University Press. Any particular place one might want to pick up a copy of this book, perhaps a brick and mortar store that you like? Yes. In fact, I'm so glad that you asked me this because the paperback of the book is coming out tomorrow, May 16th. Awesome. Yeah. And it's a lot, lot less than what the hardcover is. And I highly recommend that you purchase it from the Seminary Co-op Bookstore in Hyde Park in Chicago. All right. So paperback copy coming out from Cambridge University Press, Seminary Bookstore in Chicago, or other places you might buy a book. Thank you for joining me today, Dimitra. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Lily. <laughs>